morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where you can enjoy curbside pickup and take advantage of limited walk-in hours. Inside the Writer's Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audio book platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is Henry Winkler, an actor, director, advocate, and author of the New York Times bestselling Hank Zipser series, which has sold over 3 million copies. Henry, welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio. Can I tell you, I'm so happy to be here. Now, you're known, obviously, to most people as a successful actor, but since this is Inside the Writer's Studio, we're going to talk about your writing career. But I want to look at some of the steps you took along the way and some of the ways you've interacted with words and writing throughout the career. Now, you're an advocate in many ways, including through your books, for kids with dyslexia and other language-based learning differences. How did you first discover that you were dyslexic? Yeah, I discovered I was dyslexic when my stepson, Jed, who is now 50, he came into my life when he was four. In the third grade, we tested him and everything they said about him, I went, oh my God, that's true about me. Mm. And I finally realized I wasn't stupid. Yeah. Uh, my, my, my short German parents called me Dummer Hund, which <laughs> means dumb dog. Yeah. Uh, and I realized I wasn't dumb. I had something with a name. Yeah, yeah. Now this was well into your career and it was a career that's almost wholly dependent upon language. Um, yes. what's, it, what's it like learning lines and, and dealing with the written word and dealing with writers okay. in your early years as a TV actor? So let me say this to, uh, to all of the, the people who are watching. Whatever your challenge is, for the most part, you can find a workaround. <clears throat> you can find something that makes you uh, in, it makes you a, a challenge beater. You know, you can find something and it doesn't even matter if anybody else uses it. It doesn't matter if it is like known to the universe. Your way is the right way. Yeah, yeah. So um, language was difficult. Reading, I still, I'm not a great reader. Yeah. And when I was in high school, I never really read. Uh, and, and it was difficult for me. Uh, but if you want something, you figure out how to do it. I do it by reading one word at a time when I'm reading a script in the beginning because my eyes go kablooey, words start swimming, I leave words out, uh, I can't pronounce words, I know words, and I all of a sudden they look like Russian to me. Where there's a will, there is a way. Yeah. Some of the, some of the ways in which Hank copes in these books reminded me of a story I read about you one time. Can you, can you tell us about the story about your audition for Yale Drama School? Yeah. Uh, you have to do two monologues uh, from a modern play and a Shakespearean play. Mm -hmm. Well, the modern play I had down 
the Shakespearean, I'm not very good at Shakespeare. I really didn't do Shakespeare. I know my limitations. But I memorized a, a, uh, a character named Launce. Launce and his dog. That was what the monologue was about. I'm doing it. I'm auditioning for the Yale School of Drama. And Lance and the dog went for lunch because I don't know where they went. I lost them. They were not in my mind at all. And I made it up. Mm. I just, I just, Lance and his dog. And then I told a story about Lance and his dog having nothing to do with Shakespeare, but sounding sort of Shakespearean. I got in. It's fantastic. Um, we're, you know, nowadays we're better, at least in most places, about diagnosing kids with learning differences. Right. Um, but, but as a child, you were undiagnosed. What's, it, what's that experience like? What's it like to be in the head of a, of a dyslexic child? Well, for one thing, it is frustrating. So if it is already frustrating to learn, it is really frustrating to not be able to learn and then to be invisible, where people go, you're stupid, you're lazy, you're not doing the work, don't watch TV. I didn't watch TV for weeks at a time because it was a punishment, you know? The brain is wired differently when we learn differently. I, I, I took geometry for four years same course. Mm -hmm. I wasn't going to get geometry for all of the world. And I've never used geometry. <laughs> no one has ever said to me, hypotenuse. Yeah. <laughs> so I realize now we have to teach our children the way they learn, yeah. not what we think they should learn. So I was really strict with my stepson and my daughter. And I said everything to them that was said to me, not realizing how damaging and impossible it was. Go upstairs, do it again, try, try, try. You're not concentrating until Jed was tested. And when he is our oldest, you know, uh, uh, that we just talked about. When I learned, I turned on a dime. Our youngest, Max, all three of our children are learning challenge, but Max would come home and do his homework on his bed. Now, you're supposed to have a good chair, a good light, a desk. And he would stand at his desk and put his knee on his chair, or he would listen to the radio. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I finally realized that maybe the, the sound of the radio was kind of drowning out all other distraction so he could funnel in because he did really well. He went on to college. He's now a director. He's in the other room right now. Uh, he has his own house, but <laughs> he eats better here. But he's in the other room right now um, writing this script. Uh, that he just sold during uh, COVID. Yeah, that's fantastic. You know, something you said about how um, we have to teach students the way that they learn really yeah. reminds me of the founder of Summit School who started our school in 1933, uh, Louise Futrell. Her mantra was, 
until the students have learned you have not taught. He, right. To her, the onus was on the teacher and not yeah. on the student. Yeah, it's true. And not only that, but I have been to the summit school. I have met uh, some of the students there. I believe um, I was there uh, years ago. And I wish that I had the summit school in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, the headmaster of my private school in New York City, private school for boys, said, Winkler, I want to know why you're not achieving. I said, hey, that makes two of us. I'd like to know too. Well, let's talk about Hank Zipser a little bit. Um, yes. You know, when, when we were kids, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of diversity in the in the children's books that we read. Certainly, there was not a lot of cultural diversity, and I certainly don't remember reading a book about kids who had learning differences or who had dyslexia. T- tell us about how you first came to write the the Hank Zipser books. Okay, two things. One, I started writing by uh, by a fluke. There was a lull in my acting career. Somebody said, "Write books for children about your learning challenges." I, you know, when you tell a child early enough, often enough, they're stupid, they're lazy, don't be a moron. You should know that by your age. We believe it. Yeah. And I thought I was stupid for the longest time. I think until in my 50s. So I, I said, okay, I can't write a book. He said, I'm going to introduce you to Lynn Oliver. We had lunch. Uh, I had horrible fish. Uh, and But the meeting was great. And we hatched Hang Zipser. So you write what you know. Yeah. And I still remember what it's like to be eight years old and fail. Eight years old, take a spelling test, and completely forget the words by the time I get into class. Mm-hmm. I knew them last night. I knew them in my apartment. I was going to, I was going to ace the test. They fell out of my head. So that's, that's Hank Zipser. You know what I realized? We write characters because the same thing happened with alien superstar. Now here's an alien, 13 years old, has to leave a repressive planet, uh, becomes an actor on a TV series at Universal Studios, (laughs) but all of our characters are kids on the outside looking in. They want so badly to be part, but there's something different about them. And how do they deal with the difference challenge? And I didn't even know that that was was true. We, We also wrote, well, I can't find it. Uh, but Ghost Buddy, uh, where the ghost sounds like the Fonz, you know. And there's a sixth grader, and he's a little socially awkward. And this ghost from 1914 is in his closet and helps him blossom. You know, gives him bad advice, but along the way, some of it is good. So they're all looking in, trying to be part of the group and figuring out how do I get there? Yeah. You know, something you said reminded me, we had Mel Levine at Summit some years ago. And, yes. And he was talking about 
um, ADHD and, and a lot of, a lot of different yeah. issues. But um, one of the things he pointed out is like the particular skill set that you need to succeed in elementary school is not really the skill set you need to succeed as an adult. I mean, you talked about, obviously you're a great example, but people who, who have had incredibly successful careers, but who, who struggled in school. Because um, there are so many parts to your wonderful brain. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, I can't spell. Okay. I can't do math. Okay. But I wanted, I knew what I wanted to do. And I knew that I wanted to be, I needed to be an actor. And I didn't know how I was going to do this. I, it, it seemed like, I, like my career, if I could only get to Mars, I would be <laughs> able to succeed. But you put one foot in front of the other. You never let what you want, what you what you dream about what is burning into your soul. You never let that out of your mind. And all of a sudden you can find yourself because there isn't one journey. There isn't one path. There isn't one street. There's the street you make to get you where you want to be. Yeah. One of the things I admired about the way you started the, the Hank Zipser series, and this is, and, I, and I'm talking more about Hank because those are the ones that I personally have read. Yes. Um, obviously, you didn't want to start out saying, you know, once upon a time there was a boy named Hank and he was dyslexic. Right. You don't even use the word dyslexic in the first volume of, of the series. Because well, he doesn't know. Because uh, he doesn't know. Yeah. No. Um, and so, so one of the things that allows you to do, I felt like, uh, as a reader, is, um, yes, he has learning differences. But that's not all he is. He has all these other character traits as well. Can you that's talk a little right. bit about how you went about creating a, a real, fully rounded character who wasn't well, just a cutout dyslexic kid? The uh, uh, you know, in, in a way, I was bullied because I went to a, a school where almost everybody was good at all the subjects, mm -hmm. and I was bad except for lunch. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Hank Zipser has two friends. An African-American young boy lives in his building, the building I grew up in. His name is Frankie. He's a magician. Uh, his mother teaches yoga, and she is so good that she can put her foot in the pocket of her coat. That's how <laughs> nimble she is. And then there is Ashley, who is Asian-American, who is the business partner of the triumvirate. She understands everything. But the friends are very capable, but they don't judge Hank. And they love Hank because he's funny, because he's resourceful, because he solves problems in different ways. And the three of them have these great adventures together. And what we did, like um, Hank is sitting at his desk. He's trying to write a report. His desk, the drawer is open a little bit. He looks down, it's messy. He pulls it open and all of a sudden he is completely obsessed with making sure that his desk is completely neat, that all the pens are in the right place, that the, the watch that he is taking apart, all the pieces are in its, its a little box. He never does his homework, but boy, that drawer 
is neat. And through things like that, his fear of dictionaries. I'm going to look up a word. There are 12,000 words in the dictionary. There are 1,200 pages. My word's going to get lost in there. How do I even find it? And so through experiential um, adventures, we find out that, wow, Hank is got a learning challenge. So you talked a little bit about using your own memories of your childhood in, in creating these characters, but did you also observe, as, as you were writing, did you observe kids um, either in your family or in your neighborhood and sort of how they, Absolutely. How, they how they act? Yeah. Absolutely. And I'll tell you what we did. Um, we go to schools and uh, when we were able to travel or uh, when the new book comes out in October, we would go uh, to different schools and we would talk to the kids and then ask, they would ask questions. And no matter where you are in this country or even the world, because I was in England, I was in Italy uh, with the books, kids ask the same question. We are the same. It was amazing. The accent is different. The uniforms are different. Uh, the accents are different. But I'm telling you, we are the same. The kids, one kid said to me, can you wash the book in a washing machine? I said, only if you want to read the book on your underwear. <laughs> one kid asked me if I had a lumpy couch. Uh, what they love is that Hank is like them yeah. and Hank is not judged by his friends. He's judged by his teacher, Miss Adolf, who was my teacher, his father, who was like my father. So that you get it. You, it, it, it starts to pour out of you when you know what's so, uh, what the story is you want to tell. Yeah. I, I love the, obviously the name choice for Ms. Adolph. Um, and she That's is a real name. Yeah. Oh, is it really? That's fantastic. Yeah. And I think she was related. Well, <laughs> she is, for those who have not read the book, she is a particularly unsympathetic teacher. Um, how I'm telling you, you I, I'm telling you, honestly, I, I think that there is science, there is a pole where she was the worst teacher to ever roam the earth. Mm. You know, in the fourth grade, I raised my hand to go to the boys' room. I am still waiting for her to call on me. <laughs> how would you describe then the ideal personality for a teacher for kids who have learning differences? You know, the, the teachers in this country are some of the most important human beings that come in contact with our children outside of the house. And we don't treat them with the respect that they are due. I could not be a teacher, but being a teacher and being a parent, observing who's in front of you, realizing that a child is trying and can't do it. Yeah. Seeing who the individual is sitting in that chair, 
And from there, I think a teacher knows everything. You will figure out a way to reach um, the inside of that child. I really, really do. Listening, I think, is the key to all relationships. It's not the heart. It's not the mind. It's You will hear who a person is if you stop for a minute and listen. You have a, a student says to Hank, and this really hit me, he says, I can't imagine not being able to spell. Doesn't it make you feel stupid? Now, I'm a novelist who's a lousy speller, so that one, that one really struck home for me. But how, as, as parents and teachers, can we can make... Can I ask you a question? Yeah, sure. What kind of novels do you write? So I write, um, I, it's been described as literary mystery. It's been described Ooh. as historical. They're usually has a, have a historical element. I was an antiquarian bookseller for many years. So oh. there's usually some sort of rare book element to, to my novels. Wow. But my, my next novel coming out is set, set in New York City. So, you know, Hank and I have something a little bit in common. Um, but, but what I was going to ask is, as, as parents and teachers, how can we make kids who, who don't have these same learning challenges who are who were respond more to the typical ways of teaching how do we make those kids more sensitive to a, a kid who's dyslexic or who has a learning difference do you know what we you know i all i talk about this when i'm in a classroom with lynn oliver my my partner i talk to them and i say look if you are good at school and you see that charlie or tiffany or barbara had or or michael has a problem you know how to solve that problem so you can either make fun of them or you can say you know what i'm going to try and help them you feel good they feel good it's a win-win situation because every time you make fun of somebody because they uh, can't do something it's not their fault their brain works differently. But every time you make fun of them, it's like you slice them with a knife. You, you, you just, you make them, um, you, you make them feel horrible on top of, they already feel horrible that they can't do it. Spelling, it doesn't work. I have right here, I have patience. I have it above my computer because I cannot sound out words. I would like to have conscience and uh, license above my computer. There you go. I have schedule, tenacity, because I use that all the time. Whether it's a double C or a double S or no doubles or. yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. But here's the thing. With children who can't spell or can't read, they might be unbelievably great verbally. And to talk to them and hear that they know what they're talking about, that they know the subject, is an incredible way to find out who that student is. And I know that the teachers at Summit are dedicated to the child who learns differently. They are, I don't even know them and they are in my heart. (laughs) Well, Hank, 
lives on the upper west side of New York City. Yes, which I'm, in the apartment I grew up in. It makes me a little jealous because it means that Hank could just like pop into Barney Greengrass or Zabar's, you know, anytime he wants to. But Zabar's was down the block. Yeah. So uh, luck, lucky Hank. How does how did you draw on your experience specifically in the city uh, in in creating his life? Because it is a very it's a very New Yorky kind of book. Most of the places that goes to totally existed in my life. Harvey's Pizza Parlor. Uh, the delicatessen that his mother owns is on the corner. The school is up the block. The library is one block over and two blocks up. Yep. So, you know, uh, and then we wrote a series called Here's Hank. He's in the second grade. Right, right. And he goes to the library with his, with his grandfather. I never had grandparents uh, because they were all... Uh, they were all in Germany and died during the Second World War. But he is a loving, Hank is a loving grandfather, takes him to the library, and they look up zombies, because what a great subject. And he reads in the encyclopedia about zombies. But because he is dyslexic, he leaves out one word. Zombies do not exist. He leaves out the knot and he's convinced they're coming and they're going to get him. And we called the publisher and said, so how scary can the book be? And they said, kids love it, scare them. So he, uh, there's a zombie in my bathtub. Yeah. yeah. So obviously you want kids who have learning differences, um, to be able to read your books. How did that um, sort of need shape the way that you wrote them? Did, did it affect things like your word choice, your sentence structure, your chapter length? No, you know, what, what, what affected our word choice were words for the age group, uh-huh. not because a child uh, learns differently. Um, they identify, they see themselves, but we also write, you know, Gary Marshall, was my mentor. Gary Marshall was one of the great producer directors in entertainment. Uh, Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, Mork and Mindy, The Pretty Woman, on and on and on and on. And he always said, you know, a lot of people make important television. I make recess. (laughs) And he never strayed now, inside the comedy are wonderful messages. Yeah. Yeah. Lynn and I want our books to be read because you don't have to, because they're not an assignment, because they're not on a reading list. We want them to be uh, in your backpack, and when you've got a minute and you want to have a laugh, you read Hank Zipser or Alien Superstar. You know, that's how we write our books. We are comedy first and there are underpinnings, you know, uh, self-image. How do you feel about yourself? How do you feel about other people knowing that maybe you're not great at something, but we are comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
you even use go so far as to use a typeface that was designed ah. to help dyslexic readers. Uh, what what other what tools do we have to help dyslexic kids become enthusiastic readers? I don't know. I don't have an answer. But the 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 font. Can you see it? Yeah. Yeah. Is it good? Yeah. The font was in in uh, in here's Hank. Yeah. Uh, the the second grade, third grade, first grade reader. A father in um, Holland is dyslexic. His kids are dyslexic, and he's a graphic designer. And he designed this font, and it really makes the eye and the page friendly. I wish I had it. Everybody that I show it to goes. Oh my gosh, I see the difference. And all of a sudden, reading becomes easier because of the way that he has designed the font. Well, you you talked about um, Gary Marshall making recess. Yes. And uh, my wife passed me a note that says, not enough people make recess these days. And I think that's probably true. true. Um, but she and I worked at Summit for many years in the theater arts program. Ah. And she was the director. I was the playwright. So I, and, and comedy always came first for me as a playwright. Right. Um, and we often found that the students who struggled to read, the students who had learning differences, did so well in the theater program, knocked right. it out of the park when it came to the class play. Right. Hank finds for himself an advocate in the music teacher, a role that you played in the TV. Mr. Show. Rock. Yeah. Now, Mr. Rock was my real teacher. Well, can you talk a little bit about the role of arts education for for students with learning differences? Okay. So let me just say that that's where our country and education goes kablooey. Yeah. I, I, it is so shocking to me. Music is known. If you, if you start a student listening, playing, um, dealing with, living with music, all of a sudden math scores get better. Some kids cannot express themselves in any way but on a stage. It's who they are. It's, It's what comes with them into the universe. Honestly, I've seen it. I've seen it. How do we deny that population of child who expresses themselves through the arts, painting, dancing, music, theater, mime, whatever it is, that's where they become who they are. Mm -hmm. And we go, nah, not important. Hey, you know what? Forget about it. It's all right. Just, you'll be like stunted. It'll be good. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it amazes me how many, how often we had this conversation where a, a classroom teacher would come to us, you know, in the hallway, in the lunchroom and say, are, is, are you doing okay with Johnny? Is Susie causing you too much trouble? And they would be concerned. And we we're like, they're the best ones. They're yeah. the most enthusiastic ones. They're the ones who, who are, are becoming a new person when they, when they step. Onto oh my the- gosh, what you just said, becoming a new person, because they have been watered by the arts in whatever the art is, and they become a garden. Oh my goodness, it's so true. You know what, the, 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 
my mantra at this moment is the most important infrastructure of America, aside from keeping bridges from falling down, is education. Our lack of respect for education has gotten us, I believe, in the pickle we are now. So we've talked a little bit about what, what teachers can do, what other students can do to help their colleagues who have learning differences. Right. Um, and, and certainly at Summit, we're very blessed to have, have teachers who are trained in all the, the latest techniques, but also right. parents, parents are not trained. Parents feel at sea. How, how can parents okay, support? I got it. I got the answer. A parent doesn't have to know anything except their kid is not being disruptive on purpose for the most part. The kid is having a problem. It's the way they're built and they came out of the parent. So it's hereditary. Dyslexia is hereditary. You don't just get it by walking on the street and it kind of snaps on your brain and seeps into your skin. It's, it's locked in, it's baked in. All the parent has to know, my child is different, my child is fabulous, and I'm gonna tell my child every minute of every day, they are no different and no less smart, no less brilliant because they can't spell. Yeah. That's how the parent can approach the problem. They don't have to be great at uh, math. When, you know, when, when, um, when our children, uh, when we read them bedtime stories, my eyes get very tired reading, trying to track the pen. My wife read the book. I acted it out. So we, it was a family affair. But if I read a book to my kids, I would be like asleep before them because my eyes would get so tired, I would just fall out. Not every parent is, is going to do it perfectly, but you can see who your child is, who Jason is, who Patty is right in front of you. Now, you, you go, go to a lot of schools. You talk to a lot of kids. Yes, I, I do. You know, kids who have learning. One of my favorite things. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that too. And, and I, I would assume the kids with learning differences are going to zoom right in and listen to what you're saying. What do you say to those kids who don't have those learning differences, who, who, who might be inclined to walk into the auditorium and go, oh, this isn't really about me. This doesn't apply. Because I never say that I'm going to talk about learning challenges. I only say that Lynn and I are here to talk about our funny books. And what I tell every child, because every child, no matter who they are, needs to hear, they have greatness inside them already. And their job is to figure out what their greatness is. It could be quantum theories. I don't know that. It could be chemistry. It could be dance. It could be plumbing. It could be plastering. We need everything that every child can do to continually keep our country great, because I truly believe our country is great right this second. Mm -hmm. 
that's you know that reminds me of a of a line that I bring up in my mind again and again, both as a as a teacher, as a parent, and just as as a person from the film Chariots of Fire. There's this line where the 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 new class of young men has arrived at Cambridge right after the First World War, and they're told to look within themselves and find where your chance of greatness lies. So but that's true. I didn't even know life. that, but yeah. that is exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, and it's all there. You know, it's like already in there. Your job is to find it and then give it to the world as a gift. Yeah, yeah. Do you know? I was born, I'm and then all of a sudden I like lollipops and then I come to the idea that I want to be an actor. I don't know how that happened. I really want to be an actor. I need to be an actor. And then I move toward that and look at what a wonderful life I have led. And I never stop thinking about like from a lollipop to, I'm dreaming about this. I want to be, I know what I want to be. So we're living for a while, at least in a, in a different world. Yes, um, we are. Especially for school kids. And um, we were chatting bef before, you came on, we were having a discussion uh, with a friend who talked about how school already sort of wordifies everything. And then you layer absent learning, Zoom and, and, and distance learning on top of that. That must be a particular challenge to kids who have, have these struggles. How, how are we, are we addressing the particular needs of kids with learning differences? You know what, that is, that is a good question, and here it is. Remember, this started in February, March. I don't think we know the answer to that question yet. Yeah. I think we're doing the best we can. I think that what I've learned is Zoom makes you listen. Mm. It increases your, your, um, uh, your uh, talent at listening. And listening is maybe uh, at the high scale of what you need living your life on this planet. And then, you know, then after that, you learn your social skills and your civic skills and your, uh, your craft, whatever it is. But, you know, I met a, a, a kid, 15 years old, and um, after school, he went and worked with an apprentice. Uh, as a plasterer, you know, putting the, the plaster on the drywall. Yeah. Uh, and I thought to myself, he loved it. He said, I'm good at this. I could, I could open a business. And I thought to myself, I live in a house. I didn't build this house. I need men and women who are really good with a hammer and a saw and a ruler. A ruler, get out of here. I don't even know what those little lines in between the one and the two are. But these men and women can build the house, put up the, the shelves, put in the, the bathtub. Uh, I, I, what I, thank goodness, yeah. all comes from listening and watching. People learn through their ear, through their eye, what, do I, what uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a listener. Uh, I, I learned through my ear. Uh, yeah, my ear. Well, we like, to end, 
We like to end every episode of Inside the Writer Studio with the same 10 questions. They're okay, all, here we go. They all can be answered in a couple of words. I'm uh, going to have some water. So here, have some water. Sure I'm ready. Are we ready for the speed round? Okay. Uh, Hit it. What word do you love to work into your writing? Uh, you know, <laughs> actually, I love the sound of Hank going, you know, actually. <laughs> my grandchildren go, actually. I don't know why it tickles me. It tickles me to no end. Yeah. And I also love to work in tenacious. Mm. Don't give up. You yeah. just keep at it. And eventually you're going to beat the challenge into submission. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Um, uh, stupid. Where's your favorite um, Words that I absolutely cannot pronounce, yeah. that I can't sound out. Yeah. Where's your I'm just, can I just say one, a, a word? I'm 74 years old. It just occurred to me that wind and wind are the same exact word. Yeah. yeah. How did that happen? It's a, it's a crazy language. It really is. Where is your favorite place to write? Uh, well, I only write mostly uh, in Lynn's office. Mm -hmm. I sit on, uh, on one side of the desk and Lynn sits at the computer. Where could you never write? Oh, outside, um, uh, in a park where there's a lot of distraction. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? 90% of it. Yeah. Good. That's my favorite answer to that question, by the way. Because I, I don't know. I don't know when to use a semicolon. I would love to. <laughs> I do use the colon. I love the colon. Here's my question. Colon. Then I ask a question. Right, right. I don't even know if I'm using it right. What's the first book you remember reading? Uh, really, really, really um, The Clan of the Cave Bear. Oh, yeah. yeah. What are you reading now? Oh, uh, I love Daniel Silva, uh, oh. and um, so I, I'm reading um, The New Girl, I think it's called, which is another show that I appeared on. Okay, hold on. What book would you like to have written? The Alienist. Oh, yeah. It is by Caleb Carr. Yeah. He never wrote a great book. I shouldn't say this. He never wrote a really good book after it. It was dark and scary and historic, and I loved his characters, and I, I wanted to be part of the group that solved the crime. I, I, it was, it's one of my all-time favorite books, except for uh, I love Lee Child, um, uh, 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 Daniel Silva, and... Um, Flynn. His last name is Flynn. He was, I think he was like a, uh, a seal. Yeah. But I forget his first name. He passed away, unfortunately. So that, that's a, a little disrespectful, but. Um, what sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? I love, uh, my brain really zooms in on thrillers. Mm-hmm. I'd like to write a thriller. Yeah. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? 
We're in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We pull up to the hotel because I'm speaking in uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania that night. Mm -hmm. The bellman is 23 years old. He comes running around from his desk in order to get our bags to take them to the room to help us. He said, you know, I read every one of your books. I never liked reading before. How did you know me so well? That's fantastic. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our guest today has been actor, director, and advocate Henry Winkler, whose books for children, including the Hank Zipser series, are available wherever books are sold. Henry, thanks for joining us. Well, I just want to say, Charlie, I love this conversation. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is also proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Inside the Writer Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. On our next episode, I'll be talking to Ann Bogle, the modern Mrs. Darcy, who will be interviewing me about my upcoming novel, Escaping Dreamland, available everywhere September 22nd. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.